Hey everyone, today I'm chatting with a true living legend on Hunt for Real, Randy Ulmer. Ulmer is easily one of the most accomplished bow hunters to ever walk the earth, and he is a treasure trove of insight into what it takes to be the best shot possible and the best bow hunter. He's a giant mule deer specialist, but has hunted big game all over the world, and his advice on all things related to bow hunting is always spot on. In one minute, everything can change and it can become the best hunt of your life. It's a reality. Really understanding the landscape, that's what kills big deer. Randy Ulmer sitting out there in beautiful Colorado right now. How you doing, man? I, you know, I couldn't be better. <laughs> That's how are you uh, doing, uh, man? How are I'm, mosquitoes I'm out there. Our mosquitoes are pretty bad right now, and it's uh, it's not that uncommon for us. But we're kind of in that weather pattern where we keep getting, you know, you guys in the high country keep getting snow out there. We just keep getting rain and more rain and more rain. So we have these constant hatches going on of mosquitoes. So, you know, scouting deer right now sucks. Um, well, the most miserable year I ever spent was the summer I spent in Minnesota. I cut pulpwood up in Ooh. International Falls for three months in the swamp um, after my senior year of high school. And uh, it was the best thing I ever did because it uh, – it made me rethink how important college was. <laughs> <laughs> so how, how did you end up in International Falls cutting pulp wood? My dad was working up there at a paper mill. Mm -hmm. uh, and so uh, he, he wanted me to come up for the summer. So I did. And, and uh, that's the only job I could find. And I had, uh, I had cut firewood for a living for like, Three years before that, I I cut and delivered firewood uh, mm -hmm. all through high school, so I was good with the chainsaw, and uh, they signed me right up. And uh, back then, it seems like we didn't have very good mosquito repellent, or the uh, mosquitoes just didn't care. But you had to be in the swamp, and it was humid, and you had to wear a long sleeve shirt, and you had to wear something over your face, and it was just absolutely miserable work. It's it's terrible. It, it built character though. <clears throat> well, <laughs> sure. It is. It's, I, I maintain, you know, I would rather be somewhere too cold or somewhere that's, you know, brutal for different reasons than being in a swamp anywhere. I just, I did a, I did a hunt last year down in Florida for whitetails. You know, they have the earliest whitetail season in the country. It opens the end of July and it was so miserable being in the in the just the Everglades in those mosquitoes and that actually made me feel good about Minnesota because the mosquitoes down there we have nothing on them I mean it was it was misery by like orders of magnitude that you couldn't even fathom and it, nobody should be there were you there looking for like your a Boone and Crockett buck I was looking for any buck they were going to let me shoot. And the only one that I had even close to me was a little spike buck that I grunted in and they wouldn't let me shoot it. And it was, uh, it was mostly to test out some clothing and see, you know, w what level of misery we could get into for heat and see how some of that Sitka gear, the early season stuff would fare. And it was, it was brutal. It makes the stuff we're dealing with here now in Northern Minnesota seem like nothing. So it's, it's, the mosquito thing is, uh, 
sucks. But you, uh, what you mentioned about cutting wood, learning that you needed to go to college, that's, that's a good point because I did the same thing. My buddies and I, the year we graduate, graduated high school, we got jobs at IBM in Rochester. We had to polish computer disks all day long. We'd put, fill up a machine, turn it on, take them out, <laughs> put new disks in there, turn the machine on. And by the end of that summer, we had to work 12 days on, two days off. And by the end of that summer, I was like, I got to go to school for something. I got, I can't do this the rest of my life. It was a good eye opener for me. Well, good. I think every kid needs to do that. You know, I've, I've been a, a Boy Scout leader for 12, 12 years. Anyway, to get both my kids through and, uh, you know, that was kind of one of our mottos is you, it, kids need, or especially boys, need to learn to do difficult things. And a lot of kids nowadays just don't have to do difficult things. Uh, think of Bill's character. I think it does too. And I think you got to be miserable to understand, like to appreciate not being miserable. I mean, I think, I think it's really easy to get real comfortable and cushy in your life. And really the misery is, is the stuff that gets you to where you need to like, you understand what the work is for. You understand to appreciate something. Well, in life now, we do not have any physical hardships really in the United States. No, 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 no difficulties like people used to have. And I think that's one of the reasons why you just talked about going to Florida. I think sometimes it's important to, and it's probably one of the big reasons uh, I do a lot of the things I do, wh whether it be, you know, long races or um, bivouacking in the mountains. Uh, I think it's important to experience discomfort so you can appreciate all the comforts that we have. Yep. I think it just makes suffering, you know, I mean, don't suffer unnecessarily, I guess, but going through some stuff that makes you miserable will, will make you work harder and appreciate things more. I mean, it just, you, you don't, you see this all the time in the hunting industry. You see people get handed opportunities and they don't appreciate them. You know, if you show up somewhere and somebody says, hey, Randy, I got this 400 inch bull tied up on an alfalfa field, go kill him. It doesn't mean the same thing to you as working for it. And I think I think that's why bow hunting is a good avenue to figure out why uh, what is worth working for in life. Well, I, I think of bow hunting as kind of a metaphor for life. Uh, you you fail, you fail, you fail. Uh, but you keep going, you keep trying, you keep working hard at it, and uh, hopefully eventually you'll succeed. But in bow hunting, especially, most of the time you fail, but it's keeping a good attitude and enjoying yourself in spite of failing uh, is kind of what it's all about to me. Yep. Is being able to maintain a good attitude and having fun in spite of the fact that most of the time you're going to fail. Well, that's, that's the, that's the rub I've always had with being part of the hunting media is it is impossible to show all, like all of the downtime. 
all of the work, all of the stuff. You know, everybody wants to hear the story of how you killed the big buck, right? But they don't, you're not in a position to show them all the work that went into it or all the times you got your ass kicked trying to get there. And I always, like, that's always been like a, it's sort of like a nagging feeling that I've had is like, it's impossible to portray that through what we do, but it's so real. Well, the, the entire hunting media, I've been mostly involved in the print media and I have done very little with social media, but the few things I've seen on social media concerning me, um, people assume that I just trot out there and kill a big buck and that somebody has found it for me. Uh, nobody knows that, you know, I spend anywhere from 40 to 50 days a year up on the mountain in a tent looking for and hunting for that big deer. And, you know, all the things that that entails, the physical difficulty, the climbing the mountains, the being cold and wet and miserable. Um, because in media, all they see is a success photo, me with a, a, a buck. And they assume that, man, it, it must be easy because uh, of the frequency with which it happens. Yep. But nothing could be further from the truth. I mean, I personally, one of the reasons I love hunting mule deer is because of the difficulty involved in all aspects of it. And, and with media, all you get to show is the success picture and maybe a story, but there's no way you can, there's no way you can portray what you've gone through with the story. It's interesting every year out here, uh, I hunt in the high Alpine above Timberline mostly. And, and every year you'll have all these enthusiastic people, um, from Minnesota or other places. And they, you know, they've read for, you know, for several years about hunting the high country and, it's very romantic until you actually do it. And then you realize how much work and discomfort there is involved. And these people are all very enthusiastic for the first few days, but you can just see them wilt yeah. and they get lonely. They get hungry. They get cold. Uh, they get altitude sickness. Uh, they just get homesick and scared. And the vast majority of them just leave. Yep. which is good for guys like me being selfish, but, um, but it is funny how the media portrays things and then how things are uh, when you actually are faced with the reality of it. Yeah. I, you know, I've never, I've never really went down the path of homesickness, but now that you bring that up, I've seen that a lot. Um, I've seen a lot of people who are just like, I just want to get home. And I mean, I've been there, you know, especially when my little girls were little, I'm like, I don't want to be gone for 10 or 15 days at a time. I want to get home and see them. And it's, that's not something you see coming a lot of times. Like I think that, you know, the guy traveling from the Pennsylvania or Michigan or Minnesota or North Carolina or whatever, who goes to Colorado to hunt mule deer or elk. I don't think you see that coming because you're so excited to get away and go do this dream trip and get up into the back country. Like you said, you don't think after four days mentally, you're going to be like, man, I just want to point that truck East and go home. But it's a, it's a very real thing that happens to a lot of people. Well, I think a lot of it is um, you're in a foreign environment, you're uncomfortable 
And I think it's just human nature to want to be in the safety and the comfort of home. And uh, I mean, when I was younger, very young in my teens, I'd go out for two or three days hunting with my brother and yeah, I'd want to go home. And I think it's like running a marathon. Um, when you first start running, you know, you can only run a mile before you get tired. But once you get used to the discomforts and realize it's not going to kill you and that it's actually fun. And the key is to have a pleasurable experience, even when you're uncomfortable. And that seems like a paradox, but uh, actually you can do that. It's kind of like running uh, or exercise. Once you've become <clears throat> adapted to long endurance exercise, you actually kind of like it. Mm -hmm. uh, and if you don't do it for several days, uh, you'll miss it. Yep. And I think if you have spent a lot of time in the woods and you've been on some longer trips, you become adapted. But if, if you, all you've ever done is hunted in a tree stand and, and driven home each night afterwards or to a camp, uh, it's, it's much different than going out into foreign country where there are no roads and there are no people and you're by yourself or with a buddy and it's cold and it's wet and it's miserable and you're sleeping on a rock. Um, all your senses say, I need to get out of here. Yeah. So you can do it, but you do have to uh, acclimate and it sometimes takes years. So that's a, I mean, that's a good point right there. If you bring up exercise and I, I mean, we talk about this all the time. <sighs> You, you can't know how you're going to feel running a half marathon until you work to get there or, or some distance or ride your bike 20 miles or 25 miles or something like, but when you get there, you know, something you didn't know before and you want it again and you want to feel that again. And like you said, you know, most people can't get the, the backcountry experience that you can. You know, like you've, you've got the time and you've, you've got the motivation to be back there and hunt those mule deer for 40, 50 days at a time or, you know, a season. Most people can't get that. So you have to understand, like, if you can only get seven or 10 days, this is going to be an uncomfortable environment for you. Not just, not just because of the weather might be sucky or something like that, but just because you're a long ways from home, <laughs> you know, you can't walk down the street and see your buddies or whatever. It is a, it is a different world. And it's just a matter of getting comfortable in that, you know, discomfort in, in understanding like mentally, okay, just got to kind of push that aside and get to the point where that's, that is acceptable to you and not listen to those voices telling you to get the hell out. Yep. One of the keys while we're talking about backcountry hunting, one of the keys I found early on is if I get cold or if I get wet or if I get hungry or if I get terribly uh, exhausted, I want to give up. So if you do decide you want to come to the backcountry, you don't have to hunt every morning and every afternoon. If you feel yourself hitting the wall, take a morning or an afternoon off, feed yourself, hydrate yourself, rest. And if you do those things and if you stay warm, you will stay out there much, much longer. Most people come out with so much enthusiasm that they burn themselves out in the first day or two. And once they've hit that wall, there's no recovering. So one thing that I do now that I didn't do 30 years ago 
is is when I feel myself reaching that point of exhaustion, uh, is just back taking it back a half a notch. Yep. And and just making sure you're fed, making sure you're hydrated, especially in the high country, because you don't feel thirsty. And just giving yourself a little bit of grace and taking a nap in the middle of the day and just kind of stop and smelling the roses and enjoying where you're at and the beauty of that. The end is more important than the means. And uh, and the journey, you know, and as you get older, you discover this because you, you kind of mellow out a little bit. But the journey is so much more important than the destination. Yep. I was when you were saying that, that's what I was thinking, like. People are always rushing to the end result. Like we want to, you know, you know, I want to get that bull killed. I want to get that buck killed, whatever. But that not only is that usually not the best way to go about it because you're not being patient. You're not taking care of yourself, like you said, but it's also you're ignoring the entire process. And that's, you know, that that's one of the reasons why I want to do this podcast is I'm just, I'm enamored with the do it yourself, the, the entire process of hunting from the scouting to the getting out there to the to the butchering process to everything and you know I've done guided hunts I've done outfitted hunts and I just I always feel weird when a lot of the parts of the hunt are taken away from me or I'm choosing to not be a part of them like you're showing up and the stands are up and somebody scouted the animals and everything and I I never I never liked that very much because you're missing out on that overall experience but I think that the the thing that you're talking about with, you know, just, just take a step back, take care of yourself and learn to enjoy it. That doesn't sound like a good hunting strategy. Like that doesn't tell me how to kill a 200 inch buck, but it is such good advice for being better in those situations and enjoying them more. Well, Tony, it may not sound like the best strategy for killing a 200 inch buck, but what I found is I went for, Oh, 25 years trying to kill big bucks and was pretty much uh, a, a complete failure at it. Um, I was really good at killing big elk because they, they require two different strategies. One of the things that hunting big mule deer requires is an incredible amount of patience because, you know, there's always hunting pressure. And a lot of times these big bucks will disappear when they get pressure and the patience to stick with it and to wait for the right opportunity because you only get one crack at these bucks typically. And when I was younger, I just didn't have the patience to do it right. I would run all over the mountains and I would find big bucks, but I would spook a big buck because I wouldn't wait for the right opportunity. And then he would be gone for a day or two and I'd give up and go somewhere else. Well, now if a big buck gets spooked, I'll stay there for four, five, six days waiting for him to come back because he will come back. Mm -hmm. And uh, in the meantime, I just hang out and have fun and relax and enjoy the high country as though I were backpacking. Um, So, it is a good strategy to be patient. It is a good strategy to take your time. The key with killing a big buck is staying in the high country. I'm just talking about high country now, but wherever you're hunting Mm -hmm. is staying there long enough to get the job done. 
And if you're always in a hurry, you're going to be so impatient that you're going to leave that big buck and go somewhere else because you assume he's gone and you're impatient. So it is a good strategy to, <laughs> to just relax and take it. In. Now, there's times, obviously, when you have to really work hard to get it done. When the time is there, uh, you know, I, I say I take it easy, but when, when the time is there to get the job done, I do not take it easy. And I'm just as serious as anybody could possibly be about the end result, about killing that bug. But I guess the the wisdom is knowing when that time is. Yep. So, and that's what I wanted to ask you. So let's say, you know, you've, you've glassed a ton of mountain basins and you finally found the one you're, you're like, that's the one I want to go after. Now, when you say like, be patient, just watch it. I mean, are you, are you talking just kind of taking an observation point and just figuring him out? Like, what does he do to day to day for a couple days? And just so, you know, like you'll be able to recognize the time when you should be stalking him. Is that what you're talking about? Well, yeah. Uh, okay. Typically in the past, let's say 30 years ago, what I would do is I would see a big buck uh, during the season and I would instantly just go after him. Okay. Mm-hmm. Because I felt that this was my one chance. I needed to get it done now. What I do now is if he's not in it, I used to stock about 20 bucks for every one I killed. Now the ratio for my nephew and I is about uh, one and a half stocks per kill. Now the difference in that is we don't stock one. And my nephew is, you know, he's only 32 years old now, but he's been hunting with me since he was eight. And I've chewed his ass a lot when he was younger to, so his learning curve has been much steeper than mine. He, because I wouldn't let him do things that I knew wouldn't work. And now I would have to say he's probably better than me. Um, he knows when to do it and when not to do it, but I still have to chew his ass every once in a while. And, and the, my point is, is I've screwed up hundreds of times. So I know, I know what not to do. I may not know exactly what to do, but I definitely know what not to do. So it's, it's, it's important. It's important to wait for the exact right opportunity. And it's difficult when you're hunting public ground, which is 98% of my hunting, because there are going to be other people out there. And, and if they're up there and, and you have to take a marginal stock, then, you know, you do it. But typically what will happen is there may be someone else hunting that buck. Usually within two or three days, they're gone because they've spooked the buck and the buck has disappeared for a few days. These old age class bucks, you spook them, they don't just come right back out. You know, they hide out for a while. And typically, like two years ago, that, that giant typical I killed, there were hunters in the basin and they spooked him out opening morning. And I stayed there for four days in the same campsite. I could glass from about 200 yards from my campsite. I could get on this knob. So for four days, I just stayed at this campsite and just spent all day at that knob waiting for him to come back. And he came back on the fourth day and I killed him. 
um, they all left after the second day. So, you know, <laughs> you just have to be patient. And even then, I watched that buck for half a day before I stalked him because he was in a position where, you know, yeah, 70% of the time I could have got up and killed him, but I wanted a higher percentage than that. I, I really look for an extremely high percentage of not only getting close to the buck, but getting close to the buck and then being able to make a good shot. And, and a lot of people think, well, and I did for years and years, I thought if I can just get within 20 yards of this deer, he's dead. Well, that's not the truth at all. What you have to do is you have to wait for an opportunity where you can do two things, get close to him, stay close to him and get a shot. Um, and, and that combination is kind of difficult to come by. And it is extremely difficult to sit there and watch a big buck for a long period of time. I shot a really big buck in Nevada years ago, 10, 12 years ago. And I was within 300 yards of this deer for four days and it was brutally hot in, in the middle of August. But I knew that if I spooked this buck, I probably would never see him again. I mean, he was a giant, non-typical. So I just laid there and laid there and laid there and laid there. And I could have made stocks, but I wanted the perfect opportunity. Finally, on the afternoon of the fourth day, he got into position for a, a great stock. He was with like six other bucks. So it wasn't perfect, but he was never going to leave those bucks. Yep. So uh, I had to sneak through those bucks and, and, and shoot him. But the patience, I would have never killed that buck if I hadn't been extremely patient. <sighs> It's, that's so interesting because that's the kind of thing, you know, my world is way more whitetails than high country mule deer, obviously, but I feel what you're saying. I feel the same way about whitetails a lot of times where, you know, we lay eyes on the buck we want. And it's like, I got to make something happen. So you're hitting the antlers together, you know, you're, you're blowing the grunt tube, whatever you're trying to like force the situation to unfold and for me, I don't call a lot because I hunt a lot of public land and just, I just, I don't think pressure deer are that callable a lot of times. I think it just doesn't work that well. And so I'm just, because I want to play it safe, find myself in a situation where I just let it unfold, just see what he's doing, how he's using the terrain. And a lot of times it ends up just being, okay, I saw him do this. Now I'm going to move in because I know he likes to do that, walk that ridge or something. And then it's just a matter of choosing the moment to move my stand in and take advantage of what he wants to do. And I feel like it's it's all tied together to the don't rush it, you know, strategy. Like just just let some of this stuff unfold and recognize the moment when you got to move, but know that that might not be for days. Well, what's most impressive to me, I, I know that what I do seems impressive to guys that are whitetail hunters, but you know, I'm, I'm really good friends with a lot of really good whitetail hunters. And what impresses me most about these guys is they're sitting in their house or, you know, in their camp or, or, and knowing that they could be out hunting a particular deer, but the wind's not quite right, uh, or the moon's not quite right, or the time of year's not quite right. And they go in and you two, and you make a strategic move to be in that stand for the first time. You don't get in that stand until the time you want to kill that buck and you get in that stand and you kill the buck. And to me, that is 
it's almost like voodoo and magic. It's uh, it's it's crazy how how well you guys know whitetail behavior, and to me that's just baffling because I just do it by kind of brute strength and and perseverance, and you guys are like playing a chess match, and well, that, that is so impressive to me. It's that's just the nature of the game. And it that that's why you get enamored with the stuff you don't have. You know, that's why I have buddies in Colorado who I've introduced to public land whitetail hunting and they're obsessed with it. And they have the mule deer and the elk and the antelope and everything to hunt, but it's just it's just a different kind of thing. It's just we can't you can't win whitetails by you know, like physical, you know, like you're, you're not going to outdo whitetails physically. You know, it's not the, it's not getting into the back country. It's a different thing. And so you have to consider that. And you're playing on such a smaller field that it's like, if you go, you, you know, like, you know, that buck's probably within that section, but like, you have to be so you have to manage your presence in there. And then if you're doing the public land thing, which I'm mostly doing, it's like, like you said, you have that wild card of who else is coming in there and how does that affect what this buck's going to do? And that's, that's what I love the most about it is figuring out how to kill deer where anybody can hunt, because that's like, that's like the whitetail game on steroids. You know what I mean? Like you have that one wild card. It's just like you guys out there on the public land in the high country and the muzzleloader hunters come through and you've got elk hunters and you got all kinds of stuff going on that factor is huge and if you can still figure that buck out around all that stuff to me i i just like i don't think there's anything better in bow hunting well i hunted whitetails for oh probably eight or ten years and it was always uh, my buddies inviting me back i have a lot of buddies from my you know my competitive archery days that are also hunters and they'd invite me to come back and hunt and you know, I grew up hunting. Uh, well, I grew up hunting everything, spot and stock or chasing stuff through the woods. And first of all, they would take me out, set me in a stand. So they did all the work, all the scouting, everything for me. And I would just sit in a stand. And if nothing happened, I couldn't make anything happen. So my two great frustrations were I was not really a hunter. I was a shooter. And, you know, I truly appreciate everything they did, but it's like I've taken a lot of people elk hunting where I'm actually kind of holding their hand and getting them in position for a shot. And then they shoot the elk. And, yeah, it's exciting and it's great, but they weren't really the hunter. I was the hunter. I was just leading them along. They were the shooter. And and I knew nothing of whitetails and I still don't. Um, I knew if one came by, I knew how to shoot him, but that's all I did. And, and that's really the reason I quit is, is I just didn't feel like a true participant. I really enjoyed the camaraderie because, you know, you hunt the morning and you come back and you hang around the lodge or the, whoever's house I was hunting from. And, you know, you have fun, you go into town and then you hunt for three hours in the evening and then you come back and have a nice meal. And that part of it was a lot of fun. But at the end of it, I just felt, and I shot a few nice, I mean, when I say nice whitetails, I'm talking 140 or 150 type whitetails and never anything much over 150. But, you know, I really enjoy it. I have some on my wall right now, but I didn't, I came away from it kind of feeling a little empty. 
And uh, that's why I quit. And I have invitations now, but, um, and I do want to take my sons back there because they've never experienced it. But uh, I like being a full-fledged participant in my hunts. Mm -hmm. And uh, I just get so much more satisfaction out of it. Well, there's, there's some opportunities to take, uh, take some younger uh, hunters out and go do some public land stuff. That's that'll fulfill you. I think. <laughs> well, the thing is, is, is my knowledge base is so limited that um, my, it would take years to learn. And, and the, the, the disadvantage of me not living back there is the same disadvantage you guys have of not living out West. You have to come out and you're just kind of all of a sudden you're here and, and you really don't know that much. And I would go back there. I wouldn't know anything. Yeah. And it's, you know, it would be frustration. So it, it is for sure. But, you know, I, I think doing, doing the kind of whitetail hunting I do where we show up at public land and we camp and, you know, new spots every year, it feels to me, and I talk about this all the time. It feels to me like showing up to elk hunt where I got an idea in my head from my research and then I'm like real open to the idea of fresh sign, hot sign, you know, and, and not, not being locked into my idea of how it's going to play out. You know, we talk about this all the time, like the Eastern guys will find some meadows or something in Colorado and think, okay, well, there's got to be bulls going in there. I've seen a ton of pictures of bulls and meadows. Then you get there and there's people all over and outfitters and you got to rethink your plan and get into the timber. Whitetails are the same way. Like if you can find a place to observe, like you're talking about, you can figure them out and move in. And then if the hot sign is there and it feels to me, I, I feel like personally, I've kind of, I've like sort of melded the two worlds where they're kind of like my elk hunts are kind of like whitetail hunts and my whitetail hunts are now kind of like elk hunts. And that for me personally, like you're talking about, you know, you don't want to come away with an empty feeling from any kind of hunting you do that style for me makes me feel better about doing it than anything. Like, I feel like I've, you know, like you feel like you earn it, you know? Oh yeah. <laughs> so, so don't be afraid. Go do it. You can, I'm, I'm confident anybody who kills three, 200 inch high country mule deer a year can go out and shoot a whitetail buck somewhere, Randy. Well, I could probably shoot one. It would just be getting close enough to shoot it. That would be the problem. <laughs> I think you'd, I think you'd get there. Um, and so, well, I so speaking you, if I lived in Whitetail country, I would be more fanatical than you and Bill Winky. I'm sure of it. Um, <laughs> but, you know, cause you guys grew up with it and, and I think whatever you grow up with is what you become obsessed with. Yeah. At least that's the way it is for me and for you guys. So, uh, you know, you, you truly enjoy what you've done the most. And that's why I've kind of limited myself to the vast majority of my hunting is, is mule deer and elk. It's just because that's what I truly enjoy. And plus, I have complete control. You know, I get to choose when I go. I get to choose where I go, you know, within limitations of the tags. But uh, I don't have somebody holding my hand telling me what to do and when to do it. Uh, and that's part of the freedom of being in the mountains and the freedom of being a bow hunter is I think we're all, I think we're all very, very, very independent people. Uh, we kind of want to do things ourselves and uh, that's why we do what we do. And that's why we get the enjoyment we do out of it. And we're accomplishing something, whether other people think so or no, we, we are accomplishing something. We're, we're pitting ourselves against something and we're coming away the loser the vast majority of the time. But when you come away a winner, boy, 
you know, you did it all on your own. Yeah. We, uh, we tend to be pretty type A and I try, I'm glad you said that because I try to get my wife to understand how hard it is (laughs) to do what I do sometimes. And she does not give a shit. And I'm like, honey, do you know what the success rate is for all bow hunters doing this? And she doesn't care. <laughs> She's She ain't hearing it. She does not appreciate that her dominant male is out there <laughs> sacrificing himself in the brutal cold to provide meat for the winter. Yep. And you just need to educate her. Yep. I'm in a the dominant male and you are the provider for the family. I'll tell you something. I'm I'm 39 years old now, and I'm starting to realize that I might not be the dominant partner in this relationship. We, <laughs> it took you that long? I thought, we, you know, I always thought you were an intelligent man, but uh, uh, I have my doubts now. I'm not. Uh, there, there are times when I would prove that wrong. I, uh, the other day, we've, we've had the same furniture in our living room since we got married. We've been married 13 years, and our couch is shot. We got little kids, you know, the whole thing. And my wife has been hounding me about getting new furniture, you know, and I'm like, yeah, you know, but we, we knew we got a couple other things we want to do to the house. We want to get a new deck and do some stuff. And I just, I was fishing the other day, fishing by myself. And I was like, there's no way I'm just not going to get that furniture first. That's just how that's going to play out. She's going to get the furniture she wants. And then we're going to do this other stuff. And it was like this revelation washed over me. Like, why are you even trying to fight this? You know how it's going to play out. And guess what? Yeah. <laughs> that's <laughs> Yeah. Well, I learned long, long ago that it's better to be happy than to be right. Uh, <laughs> you just have to accept things the way they are uh especially people like us that that uh spend so much time away from home doing what we love to do and it's it's very selfish on our part but uh like i tell my wife it's it's i need this it feeds me it's what it's what it's what keeps me going it's what keeps me alive and fortunately, I was kind of grandfathered in because I got married a little bit later in life. And uh, she knew exactly what she was getting into. We even had we actually had a long conversation about it before I proposed. Uh, you know, it's like, hey, this is me. This is how I am. And it, it's not going to change. And if, if, if that's going to be hard for you to accept, this is not going to be a, a happy union. <laughs> so anyway. Well, that's... You- so, yeah, we have that, to do, we have to let them we have to let them be the dominant person inside the house so we have the freedom to do what we want to do. Yeah. Well, and you're not going to win anyway. I don't care what anybody says. I, you know, I have a house full of women and I uh I need to go sit in the outdoors and have it be quiet. Like I was I took my little girls fishing, you know, a week ago. We were we're smallmouth fishing. And I was thinking about, I'm like, one of my daughters in the last hour has said more words than I'll say all week in just this one hour. And it's like, you just, like you said, you need to get out there into the wild. I I need that too. I need to go be by myself in the wild and make my own decisions and control my own destiny and enjoy every step of the way so I can come back and be dominated in my marriage and be okay. All right, we'll do the furniture shop. We'll do whatever you want. I don't care. Just, just leave me alone for this part. And that's, that's been the secret to a, to a decent marriage on this end anyway. 
Well, and, and a lot of people don't understand that. A lot of people hate being by themselves. Um, you know, some people need nature and the wilderness, and some people just don't. Some people just need people. And, uh, you know, obviously you and I aren't those people. We need people, but we need to be alone and we need nature. I mean, those are two of the things that we need. And, and fortunately, uh, you have a wife that understands that that's your need. That's, that's where you draw a lot of your emotional energy is recharging your batteries, uh, out there by being by yourself. And that's a really hard concept for a lot of people to understand. Yep. It, it is. And, you know, just, just as an example, you know, I, I, I write a lot. I mean, I have a lot of assignments every week and a lot of deadlines and I, I work for several publications and I'm, I've been pretty lucky that, you know, I am pretty driven to be outdoors and scout a lot and stuff. So I, I have a lot of inspiration coming just from my, you know, random activities during the week or whatever I'm doing, even if it's just shooting a bow in the backyard or something. But every once in a while, I'll hit writer's block like hard, just like screaming at the computer, got nothing. And I hit that point last week and I was like, this is stupid. Like, I, And I just I called my wife. I said, I'm heading up north for two days. I'm going fishing by myself. And I grabbed a fly rod because I haven't fly fished in a long time. I'm like, I'm going to go fish smallmouth with a fly rod and just reset. And I went out on the boat with my black lab and fished smallies and had a freaking blast and came home and the words just came. And it was like all my brain needed was that little reset to being on the water and just focusing on these stupid brown fish swimming around, catching some, and then getting back to a place where I'm like, okay, now I can participate in the work side of life again. And it's just, it seems silly, but it's... It's just what you got to do sometimes. It's who you are. You know, interestingly enough, you mentioned that. And I must be a little ADD or ADHD because my work day requires, I never sit at my computer. And most of my work is inside of an office. And I never sit at my computer working for more than two hours at a time. What I do is I have the freedom to work from home as you do. And I will spend an hour and a half at my computer doing what I have to do. And my mind goes blank. So what I do is throughout the day, I'll go out, I'll ride my bike, I'll exercise, I'll do yard work, I'll, I'll do work around the house, I'll shoot my bow. But I do all these things in small increments, I'll work for an hour and a half, go do something else. I have to be physically active and I have to be outside. Otherwise, I don't get anything accomplished. So my work day, now that my kids are out of school and I'm pretty much by myself, my work day might be 16 hours long. But during that 16 hours, I've spent five, six, seven hours doing other things in between my actual work. And I am so much more productive. I have found that if I sit at the computer, like you talk about having deadlines, I usually try to get things done well before the deadline. But if I'm up against the deadline or if things have stacked up and I have to sit at my computer, I will find myself after four or five hours sitting there and staring at the wall and getting nothing accomplished. Uh, and 
so uh so your your two-day um recharging of the batteries my batteries must have a very short lifespan because (laughs) i have to recharge them about every hour and a half or two hours well i should i should clarify because what you're saying sounds like my life i i maybe will sit longer depending on what i have to do but I break up my day by taking my dog out and working her. I go for a run or I go to the gym every day I'm home. Sometimes both, just depends. I I do the same thing because it's like, again, this is a dumb thing to bitch about, but if you have to be creative, it's like you you, you can't just turn it on and off. It's like not something that can, that's just always available to you. And to me, I'm like, I've talked about this on several podcasts. I'm becoming more and more convinced that the mental and the physical are 100% linked every which way possible. And the feeling of like, okay, if you have to be mental right now, like you have to sit down, write something and it's not coming. If you go do something physical, that has an effect on the mental aspect of things. And even if it's just doing the yard work, like you said, you just went out and accomplished something. Like you can, you're going to, even if you don't really feel good about mowing the lawn or something, you're like, oh, that's just something I had to do. I think that has these benefits that we don't really recognize that help us in every aspect of life. Just like riding the bike, you know, being out on the trout stream, whatever, I think it's all linked to just feeling like you're doing something productive. And if you happen to enjoy aspects of it, that's way better. But I think it's just necessary for functioning. It is. And you know what? I feel very sorry for people that have never gotten into fitness. Um, And I say that because if you've been fit once, in your life or or for a long period of time. And then for some reason you can't go out and exercise and you can't do these things or you you've eaten right your whole life and then you have to eat poorly for a while. You realize how bad you feel when you don't exercise and when you don't eat right. And you realize it's kind of like having a hangover and you realize that the vast majority of the United States population feels like that all of the time. And you wonder how they function. And, you know, you wonder why so many people are on antidepressants and drugs and and have psychological issues. And I think a lot of it is because people just don't do anything physically anymore. And humans have developed to be physical beings. Uh, they're supposed to be active all the time. And the whole mind-body connection is huge. I mean, it's absolutely huge. You know, they've done studies where they've given a random group antidepressants. They've given other groups some other thing. And, and then typically in study after study after study for depressed people, the group that exercises has the best results of whether they get psychoanalysis, they get therapy, or they're on medication. Pure, simple exercise does more to help the human psyche than just about anything else other than being bonded with other people. Um, So, but you can preach that, but until people fully understand it and fully experience it, they will never do it. No, and that's frustrating. And you you know what they've, there was a pretty recent study that came out on that. And you know what they found even better than exercise, like to, to increase mental health, like uh, positive mental health was exercise in nature. So running on a treadmill was good. 
uh, running on a trail through the woods was the best. And so it's like, man, we just come from that. We just need that. And we've gotten away from it. I, I agree with you a hundred percent on that, that I think it's like, you know, we, we get into this a lot and I think life in so many ways, experience, just experiences are so important. Like I always look at my little girls and I'm like, I want them to go do cool stuff. I want them to be, to travel and see new places and meet new people and experience stuff. And you're going to do that more if you're in better shape. Like it's all tied together. If you're, if you're disciplined enough to keep yourself in shape, you're going to go do more stuff and you're going to enjoy life more. And it's just a snowball thing. And that's, that's one of the reasons I love seeing people get hooked on elk hunting. I'm like, if you, if you know you're going elk hunting every year, at least you know you should be working on staying in shape all year. Like you might not do it, you know, you might not kick it in till April or May or something, but you know in your head, like my life will be better those seven or 10 days if I drag my ass to the gym every, you know, five days a week or if I get on that bike or whatever. And I, I, I mean, I agree with you, man. I, I think it is so important for our mental health. Well, you know, you go, I go to these bike races and you watch the general public and, and how happy the general public is. And I would have to say not very happy. And then you go to a, an, an endurance type of bike race where people are in really good shape, uh, especially in the mountains. And you see these people and they are all happy and all nice. And they're all having fun, even the old ones. And it kills me, you know, in Arizona, I live in Arizona in the wintertime and the spring and I'll go, and it's just gorgeous weather for riding a bike, just gorgeous weather for riding a bike. And yet I'll go into the gym and I'll see people on these stationary bikes, riding these stationary bikes indoors. You talked about exercising outdoors, and I want to scream at them, are you nuts? Go go outside and do something. But it's it's what they want to do. Well, it's, it's a, it's a weird thing with exercise because it gets ritualistic for us. So, you know, some people get hooked on having, you know, the certain kind of music or the, the certain kind of situation. They're like, okay, now I can exercise, you know, and that, that's why you see people. Cause I see it too. You know, I go into the gym in the summer to lift cause I don't have weight room in my house, but it would be torture to run on the treadmill in Minnesota when it's 75 degrees outside, it'd be, it'd be insane. But you see people who kind of get locked into that, like, well, I have to go do this a certain way, or they feel like they need to, you know, you're paying for that membership. You got to go use it or something. And that, I think that's part of it. But I, I feel the same way when I see that, I'm like, ah, just walk outside, <laughs> you know, like just, just go, you could go do this outside and it would be better. And you might see some deer and you might, you know, just, but Whatever. As long hey, at least those people, they're trying, you know, like at least they're doing something, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. So, so that's that's always good to see. So we, we veered way off course here, which happens every freaking time, because I had something I wanted to bring up with you, and I don't want to end this podcast without talking about it. So I, re- I reached out to you recently because I had an assignment for Meat Eater on, on buck fever. And I've written about buck fever a lot and I suffered from it. I still suffer from it, but I went through a period in my life where I just about quit bow hunting because I could not rein it in. And I wanted to reach out to somebody who would be a good source on it. And I think people look at you, anyone who's familiar with your track record with 
high country mule deer and you just just your success bow hunting and then your your tournament success your your competition shooting success i think people would assume if there's one guy in this country who doesn't have a problem with buck fever it would be randy Ulmer. but what you told me made that uh, seem not true well <laughs> you know i've talked to people that are accomplished bow hunters that tell me they get do not get buck fever and these same and they're they're celebrities and they've also told me that they don't miss and i hate to call anybody uh a liar (laughs) but i'm not so sure that i believe that uh, because i miss and i get buck fever the thing is 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 buck fever i think you know, the buck fever, target panic, whole psychological meltdown issues that we experience as archers and bow hunters is a, a complex psychological issue. And, and uh, I think everybody gets it to a degree. And it's not whether you get it or not. It's whether you can control it. Um, interestingly enough, and I think I shared this with you when we were talking about uh, this with you for your article, but... One of the best ways I think a person can get a handle on buck fever, because you're never going to, it's never going to not be there. Um, The only way that I know of to get a handle on it for me was to admit that I was nervous and then allow myself to be nervous, but then tell myself I was going to do the best I could nonetheless. And one of the very best ways of doing it, buck fever is a hard thing. In order to get used to something, you have to replicate it. You have to be able to do it over and over and over again until you get good at it. Unfortunately for the average bow hunter, he might get buck fever three or four times a year if he's lucky when that big buck comes in or whatever. One of the things that helped me the most was shooting competitive archery because when you're shooting at any level, but especially if you're very competitive and shooting at a high level, uh, you get the same exact emotions in a tournament, especially on a shoot down or in a very important shot that you get, uh, that you experience when you're hunting game and when you get buck fever. And for years, uh, when I first started competing, I would read these books on mental, uh, you know, mental, the mental game, mental strength. And they, you know, wanted you to act like you're, imagine you were floating on a little white cloud or imagine you were shooting in your backyard and that this pressure wasn't there. And that never worked for me because every fiber of your being realizes that the pressure is there and how important this is to you. So what I finally did and and it worked and I did it by accident is I go, you know what? I am as nervous as I could possibly be and I'm not going to get over it. However, I am going to do my very best to make the best shot I can, nervous as I can be. And a part of that is developing good form, of course. And you have to just let your form take over. Now, you might be shaking. I have won a lot of world-class tournaments shaking. However, I let my form take over and I made myself do the very best I could in spite of my emotions. And the same thing holds true with buck fever. You just 
have to admit that I'm nervous and work up some sort of mantra where you can go through the steps of making a good shot in spite of the fact that your heart feels like it's beating out of your chest. Yep. Yep. Well, so not only that, I mean, certainly that, but I found for me is like, I have to try to, to tamp down that, like the, the, the feeling that the situation is getting out of my hands. You know, like I have to tamp down the feeling like because because that makes me rush it. And I think rushing it, like rushing the shot, rushing the encounter is is like part of the psychological symptoms of buck fever where we're like that thing I want to possess so bad could get out of my life now. Like I didn't think he'd ever come into my life. Now he's in my life. And what if he goes away? What if he gets away? And it, it's like a panic thing. And I think, you know, not only getting into the situation where you might shoot a deer, you know, like you where like the situation where you're guaranteed to get buck fever, but also just being around those animals more. And like you said way earlier, watching, I I'm positive watching those high country mule deer, the way you do sitting back as that observer and just seeing them in their day-to-day life makes them seem, you know, like it seem more doable to you. Like you can, you can get this done. It's not like it's this mystery creature that shows up once in your life or once a fall and it's a five second encounter. It's gone. Like, you know, that dude's out there living in the high country and this is his habits and stuff. And I think a lot of whitetail hunters, whitetail bow hunters in particular, don't spend any time around big bucks until that one big buck comes trotting through grunting on November 7th. And then it's, all hell breaks loose because they're like, holy shit, it's finally here and it's going to go away and they rush it. And I, I think you don't get comfort, like you said, around that without seeing them more and spending more time watching them and just getting into a position where it's like, this might not be the only time this dude comes by me. Mm-hmm. Well, I used to rush the shot just like you're talking. I still have that overwhelming feeling that I need to get it done right now. And I had this silly little mantra that I've used for the last 30 or 35 years. And uh, it's patient seldom goes unrewarded. When I'm going on a stock or when I'm getting ready to make a shot, I I just say this silly little thing to myself, patient seldom goes unrewarded. And I don't know where I heard it or why I say it, but it really works for me because what I've found is if you are patient, now you may rush the shot, uh, you may rush things and, you know, if you don't rush things, that deer might get away, but nine times out of 10, you have more time than you think. And even if that deer gets away today, well, you might find him tomorrow. And so again, as you get older, patience becomes easier. But for me is just going through my, my sequence of exactly what I need to do. And I have a a specific sequence that I have of exactly what I do calms me down and just telling myself, be patient, be patient, be patient, be patient. It, 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 It calms me down. Even though I'm as nervous as can be, it's like, okay, yeah, you're as nervous as can be. Be patient, do everything right. Here's your process. Here's your steps. The steps, are basically the same as they are for shooting a 3D tournament or an indoor archery tournament. The steps are the same. And once you get those steps ingrained in your brain, and then 
and this is a big thing for bow hunters, most bow hunters, is not yanking the trigger. That is so hard for people. And if you can teach yourself to be a squeezer rather than a yanker, oh, and the, and you'll realize the first time you've actually squeezed the trigger because for 25 years, I couldn't recall what happened from the time I drew my bow back till the okay. arrow went off. And now the vast majority of the time, I can take you through every bit of the sequence because I was mentally involved. Whereas when you have that blind blood rush to your brain from the time you pull your bow back till that arrow is gone, it is such a blood rush that you can't even recall what you did, where your pin was, what pin you used, or even if your pin was on the animal. Um, so, uh, develop my advice was, would be to shoot competitively whenever you can. And you don't have to shoot, shoot at any national or state level. All you have to do is shoot with your buddies, but make it competitive, make the shot count, make the shot important, make the shot, have some pressure involved with it. And the more you do that, and the more you develop that specific sequence of knowing when to draw your bow, picking a spot, and that's something we've all heard since we were picked up a bow, but it is so important. Even now today, as I draw my bow back, I say pick a spot and use the right pin and know the exact distance. That, and then squeeze. So that that's one of the reasons why I went to a single pin site because I had to like hack my brain a little bit because I couldn't get... I couldn't understand why I could stand at the range at any range and shoot pretty well, whatever pin I had to pick. But when I got out in the woods and that buck came by or I was crawling up on a mule deer, it was like too much for my brain to go, okay, red pin, high, low, whatever. I just, I couldn't do it. And I, I got so frustrated. I'm like, I have to dumb this down for myself. Cause I can't, I can't get there. And it was always that step. And I remember the panic of doing that, like thinking it has to be, you know, yellow pin, red pin, whatever, and punching the trigger or shooting over them constantly, like coming down on them and going to a single pin site for me, it just, it dumbed it down. It took the shot sequence. It, it took the thought process of my shot sequence out of the shot sequence. So I had to think, okay, 37 yards, dial into 37 yards, and my sight window is exactly the same. I just got to get that green pin behind his shoulder and and shoot. And it was like, it literally saved me because I could not, I was falling apart. I mean, I had a moment in, in Minnesota, probably when I was like 24, 25 years old, where at, before we had antler point restrictions, it would take me an entire season to get one buck that was two and a half or better anywhere near me. I mean, just, we just didn't have them. And I had one night, I think it was Halloween night. I had a buck. I looked up and a buck started walking through that was like one fifties. And for me at that time, that was incredible. I mean, still a great deer, but at that time it was like looking at a unicorn and I missed that buck bigger than shit, just flamed out. He went a little ways off and he stood there. He didn't know what happened. And so I knocked another arrow and I was trying to call him back in. I was throwing everything I could at him because that situation had come and gone, but it was like still there, you know, like it was maybe, you know, salvageable. And in the process of calling to that buck, I called another one in 
And I didn't even, I was so focused on it. I looked over and here comes this great big eight pointer, not as big as him, but a beautiful buck right by me. And I just drew and I shot right over his back and my arrow stuck in the ground. And when he dropped to run, he snapped my arrow. That's how close he was. And it was like, I was like on the verge of tears. I'm like, how am I so bad at this? Like I should be like, if you put a Reinhardt target there, you'd never miss it. I mean, I could hit it with a spear, a blowgun, spit wads. I could shoot it left-handed, right-handed, and you'd probably hit it. And here I am with this deer that's bigger than that, and I'm missing him completely at a range where I could, you know, it, it, it was just like insanely frustrating. And it forced me to go, I've got to do something different. And I didn't go the tournament route like you're talking about. I just figured out a way to dumb my stuff down so much that it was... It was less likely that I would screw up in that, you know, three, four, five, six seconds when you're at full draw. Well, there's a lot of people because this whole thing, this whole target panic buck fever is a, a it's a psychological issue. Uh, you have to find whatever crutches you can use to help. Uh, I've helped several bow hunters that, and, and the psychological crutch you use of using a single pin, it would kill me to use a single pin because animals move, things change. And then, and it requires so much motion to, and when I'm close to a mule deer, motion is something you cannot afford. And if he takes two more steps and I have to change that pin. So I want a pin for every distance out to as far as I can shoot. So I can just do it without any extra motion. However, it saved you. And I have a lot of friends that I've helped who I have completely changed. We're doing the same thing. They were missing point blank shots because their mind was just melting. And I've had these people, even though it is not the best way to hunt, I've had them go to hunting with a, a back tension or hinge release. They don't know when it's going off. They can't make it go off fast. And yet it's increased their percentage a great deal. Now there are opportunities that they lose because they couldn't get the shot to go off fast. And there are opportunities that you're going to lose because you're going to set your pin for 37 yards and that deer is going to walk out another seven yards while you're at full draw and you're going to go, oh, wow. And you're not going to let down to rearrange find them. So you're going to guess and then you're going to miss. Whereas if, if I see him walk out another seven yards, I go, okay, now he's whatever, 46 yards and I'm going to use that pin and I'm going to shoot him and hit him. So Again, it's okay to use crutches, not ideal, but it's okay to use crutches because we all have psychological issues and and we all need we all need certain therapeutical aids to help us manage those problems. Yeah. Well, yeah, there I mean there's no perfect system. And for me, you know, people say that to me all the time like, well, I can't move yeah, you know, it's a lot of times it's elk hunters who are like, you know, if I'm calling in an elk, I don't want to all of a sudden have to, you know, you think he's coming down here and he cuts this way and it's 50 yards instead of 30. And I totally get that from ha- having switched 10 years ago. I've gone back and forth a little bit now just to see if I could. And, but I primarily hunt with single pin movers and I've had two two times where I had to let down and redial 
and I got both of those animals. I've I've never had a situation. Well, let me put it this way. I've, yeah, I've missed. I've I've had situations where I I screwed up, but for me personally, it was the answer to a lot of my problems. Because you, like you say, you know, if he comes out at thirty seven and then all of a sudden he's at forty six and you just switch pins, my brain doesn't allow me to do that. <laughs> I'm not. I don't have the mental bandwidth to to make that decision. I'm going to screw that up. And so it's you, you're gonna you're gonna sacrifice something with whatever you go with, and you just got to kind of find what works for you. You know, some people it is that mantra. You know, one thing that I found myself doing a lot now because I'm primarily whitetail hunting is when I see deer walk out. I just look at them and I think about them being a target, a 3D target. And I'm like, you'd never miss that. You know, like you, you know, if you put that a 3D target at 25 yards, you're it, it, like, you're not going to miss it. But why do we miss deer? And like, I think about it that way and look at it and go, I, you know, I'm not going to miss it. All I got to do is bury that pin and then it's over. And it's just, it's just like, however you got to work around that psychological shortfall you have when, you know, the adrenaline dump happens and the fight or flight response kicks in and you don't know how to manage it. Um, it's a, it's a weird deal, but I love, I love that there's different ways to do it. And I love that you said there are people you talk to who say they don't get it. Cause I, I have a, I, you know, the same thing happens to me. I, ha- I had a guy come up to me at a show one time and I had done a seminar on buck fever and, and beating buck fever. And it's, it was interesting because I used to do it for a while. And I would say, you know, right at the beginning of the seminar, I'd look at the crowd. I'd say, okay, who gets buck fever out here? And about six people would raise their hand. And I'm like, why are the rest of you here then? <laughs> you know, like if you, if you don't get buck fever, why are you sitting here listening to me talk about how you beat buck fever? And I had one guy come up to me after, and he, you know, everybody tells you their story, you know? And he said, oh man, the very first time, I went bow hunting. I shot a, I, I don't know, 140 inch 10 pointer or something. And I was, holy cow, you know, that's, that's pretty incredible. And he kind of like sheepishly said, yeah, I didn't, I didn't get him though. And I said, oh, you know, what happened? And he said, well, that buck walked in and I drew and he said, I was, you know, settled that pin. I shot and my arrow bounced off his antlers. <laughs> and I said, well, I said, how, you know, if you think you didn't get buck fever, but you missed his lungs by, you know, two feet, like what was going on there? And I don't know what his excuse was, but I'm like, you were staring at his freaking antlers, not thinking about, you know, like we know what was going on, but in his head, he's like, I don't, I don't have buck fever. And I'm sitting here going, I think you do brother. Like, I think, I think most of us do. We just, you know, either don't experience it enough to have to really acknowledge it, or we just choose not to. And I, I think that's a bad way to go about it. You know, you don't, I think people do not realize how badly they melt down. Uh, I guided for a little bit and I guided one hunter and uh, I watched him miss a bull elk at 19 yards, a big bull in Arizona. And there was a herd elk coming through. And I told him that when the herd comes through, I'm going to call I'm going to tell you to draw your bow back. I was standing right behind him. I'm going to tell you to draw your bow back. And then I'm going to cow call. And when I cow call, the bull is going to stop and he's going to look at us and shoot right then. So this bull came in, it was 19 yards exactly. And there were cows on either side of him and it was in the ponderosa pine trees. And this is the first time I'd watched the guy shoot. And I wasn't watching. I was just watch, watching the bull and he shoots and he hits a pine tree by a cow that was about five yards behind the bull. 
And when after he shot everything, they all ran away. And he goes, I got him, didn't I? I said, uh, no, no, you didn't. I said, now, did you see, because it was like a 390 bull, it was a big bull. Ugh. I said, did you see the antlers on the one you were shooting at? Oh, yeah, they were huge, huge. I said, well, that's great. I said, uh, so you were shooting at the bull for sure? He goes, yeah. And I said, well, your arrow's over here in this pine tree. And he goes, well, the bull is over here. I said, yeah, I know. Uh, and he had no clue. So I watched him miss two more times. And he literally closed his eyes, yanked his bow, and then yanked the trigger. We got that same bull in at, at 20 yards again. And this time I did nothing but watched him. And he closed his eyes, yanked his bow up, and then yanked the trigger. And that bull was standing in jack pines 20 yards away, and his arrow went over the jack pines. And he, <laughs> he, had, he literally had no clue. Each time he shot, he thought he was on the bull and he thought he would, had killed it. And he, his mind just went completely blank. And once you've seen that, you realize how terrifying this disease is and, and how you can truly just blank out. Yep. Well, I mean, you said that earlier, like you, you went for a long period of your bow hunting career and couldn't remember the shot. Absolutely. And man, I I'm the same way. I mean, I've I'm actually, you know, I'm way better now than I used to be, but there are still times where I'll shoot and I don't remember seeing that pin. Like I don't I just know the shot happened. It, it used to be every time. Now it's not. Like now there's a lot of times when I shoot where I know that green pin is where it needs to be. But when you see somebody else, you you can't know for yourself. You know, it's like it's probably like you know, if you think you're a really good dancer, like you might be, but if somebody filmed it and showed it to you, you might be like, oh my God, I'm a terrible dancer, you know, but like, you can't know that for yourself. And when you see somebody else, like I, I've got a really good buddy who I hunt with a lot and he's, he's, I introduced him to bow hunting probably, I don't know, 10 years ago. So he's like, he's new, you know, r relatively speaking. And I've been with him on some stocks and I've seen how he falls apart or I've taken him hunting some places and, you know, he'll shoot, he'll shoot a deer and have no idea what happened. Like, you're like, well, where did it hit? What happened? And he'll be telling you the story and he's just making stuff up because he just knows he shot and now there's blood there and has no idea where his arrow went. No idea what way that deer was facing, no idea anything. And it's like, he just, you know, you can, you like literally leave your mind behind and shoot that bow. And then you're just trying to piece it together CSI style. And it's crazy, but it, it, but it happens. Well, I think that's one of the reasons it's so important to practice a bunch and shoot competition if you can. But one of the things I found is the more I shot, I mean, the more arrows that I shot concentrating on good form and concentrating on squeezing the trigger even back when I was not remembering the shot from the time I drew my bow back till after the deer ran off, even then I very often, most of the time made a very good shot. I just didn't remember it. And, mm -hmm. and I think the difference between maybe me and the guy that I was telling you about earlier was that 
I've shot tens and tens and tens of thousands of arrows focusing on good form. And I think your muscle memory, your subconscious, you, your body will learn how to do that particular action very, very well in spite of your brain melting down. And again, it goes back to those tournaments when I was shaking and yet I was beating world-class competitors. It, and they may have been shaking too, but I think the reason that I was able to do that is because of discipline. And one of, one of the things that I never allowed myself to do when I was shooting competitively, and I shot competitively for a long, long time, I would never allow my shelf to shoot arrows just to shoot arrows. Every arrow had a meaning. I never plinked. I never flung arrows. I only allowed myself to make good shots. If I started getting to the point in a practice session where I was very tired, I would quit shooting because I didn't want to learn to make bad shots. And people will say, well, how did you ever get in good enough shoot, shooting shape to shoot long tournaments that required a lot of arrows? Well, every time after a practice session, people say, well, you have to shoot a lot of arrows to get in good shooting shape. Well, no, that's BS. At the end of each shooting session, I would pull my bow to exhaustion several times. So let's say for my hunting bow at 70 pounds, I like to be able to pull my hunting bow 15 to 20 times straight back without like. And so each time I end a practice session, I pull my bow back as many times as I can. So I'm getting in shooting shape, but I'm not getting in shooting shape at the sacrifice of good shooting form. So if I could encourage the listeners to do one thing, that would be to make every shot count and only shoot good shots. Don't just go out there. I see people go out and they'll have 12 arrows in their quiver and they'll just shoot, 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 shoot. They are practicing mediocrity. Yep. And that's going to come home to haunt you when the shot really counts and when you're depending on your muscle memory and your subconscious to make that shot because your conscious is no longer involved. That's, that's such a good point. And it's, I always think of it in terms of training a, a hunting dog. You know, if you go get that puppy and it's loaded with potential, but you know, you're working every day and you, you got one, you know, three hour window Saturday where you can take that dog out to train it. And you think you can cram a week's worth of training into one session where that little puppy is going to lose his interest and lose his enjoyment it's going to be a disaster. And I see people here, you know, I have a big walkthrough shooting range by my house here in the Twin Cities. And if you go there in June, you'll see a couple people. If you go there in August 25th, you know, right before the Minnesota season is going to open here, I'll see dozens and dozens of hunters going through there trying to shoot as many arrows as possible in that short window and it's such a bad way to go about it you can't catch up that way yep i agree i agree but you know everyone has their limitations and everyone has a different level of commitment or desire and you know you and i are able to spend a great deal of time doing it so we want to tell other people how to do it but if you don't have time to shoot a lot of arrows 
at least make the arrows that you do shoot count. Yep. Uh, that would be, and, and when I was shooting at my top level, I was working as a veterinarian and I had very little time and I would guess why well, it's not really a guess. I knew that my top competitors were shooting, you know, a hundred to 200 arrows a day. And I'm talking about the top professionals and I was only able to shoot. I shot somewhere between 35 and 50 arrows every other day. That's all I had time for. But you know what? I made every one of those arrows count. And I'm not so sure that that isn't a better way to do it. Uh, just because you are focused and the human mind only has the ability to focus intensely for so much time. Mm -hmm. And if you're focusing very intently on, on each shot and each aspect of each shot, you're ingraining a perfect shot as opposed to a mediocre shot. Well, it's, it's quantity over, or it's quality over quantity again, just like when you're choosing when to stock in on mule deer, you know, you, you want the quality stock, not, you don't want 20 mediocre stocks. You want one good one. And, you know, you don't want to take 200 shots. You don't care about, you want to take 40 that matter and that you're focused on. Um, Randy, we are, we are like dangerously close to running out of time here. Um, the last, the, the, the one thing I wanted to get out of you before we, before we close this up, I want to hear about your most embarrassing miss out, out in the field. Like what was the one time where you just whiffed where it was like, I should be a golfer. I shouldn't be doing this anymore. I need to give it up. What, what was the one time? <laughs> well, I didn't actually miss, um, but I'll tell you about it. Uh, I was kind of, when I was at the top of my game, I was considered uh, the guy that uh, had it mentally all together. And uh, I was at the top of my game. I was winning a lot of tournaments. And uh, they, they decided to put up a big tournament. There usually weren't really big tournaments out west, but they decided to have this one giant 3D tournament out in Colorado, put up a lot of prize money. And so all the top pros flew out here to Colorado. Plus it was in the middle of summer. It was beautiful. And it came down to myself and Jackie Cottle, who was one of the best competitors at that time. And we had tied and we had to have a shoot off. And there were a lot of people there. And of course, for the shoot off, everybody gathers around all the pros and all the amateurs and everybody. So there were just people all over because it was in this little bowl and there were people everywhere. And so uh, Jackie made his shot and I was very calm, cool and collected. And I knew the yardage exactly. I just felt it. I felt it. And so um, I drew my bow back and I was prepared to make my shot. And somebody from the crowd says, hey, Ulmer, you need an arrow on that bow. <laughs> I had forgot to knock an arrow. So that was my most embarrassing moment ever. <laughs> At least you didn't shoot though, right? I didn't. I didn't explode my bow, but had that guy not said something and he did it in a very smart ass way. And I don't know how many other people realized I didn't have an arrow on my bow, but 
you know, I don't know how they would have counted that. I think I'd have, they had had to let me shoot it over, right? <laughs> so uh, I have two questions. So did you make the shot there? I did, and I won. Well, see, there you go. You you overcame that. My other question is: So, what's the worst you flamed out missing an animal? So we know we know you 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 towed the line and didn't have an arrow knocked. But what's a what's the biggest mule deer you've ever missed? And what was the most embarrassing? I mean, even though you don't have an audience, what was the one where you're like, oh my god? It's hard to be completely embarrassed when you're not with someone else. Uh, so I was in Alaska hunting with Dirk Eddy, Tom Hoffman, and Jack Frost, all great guys. And I had never killed a black bear. And uh, it was in the springtime. And and Tom Hoffman was in the tree with me and because he wanted to film me shooting my first black bear. And the bait was nine yards away, nine yards. And this was 15 years ago. I mean, I was at the top of my game. Anyway, this bear comes in. And it was getting pretty dark and it was a big bear and Tom was filming me. And, uh, I thought, you know, it's getting pretty dark. I am going to shoot this thing right in the heart. And, uh, cause I don't want to go look for it. Right. I'm not going to shoot it back where I normally would, you know, back in the middle of the lungs, going to go ahead and heart shoot it. So anyway, I draw back, I shoot, Bear runs off. I said, Dad, let's go get that bear, Tom. Uh, he's going to be he's going to be piled up. Tom goes, uh, Randy, you missed. I said, No, Tom, this no, you don't get it. This bear was nine yards away. I said, I had my twenty yard pin on his heart. He goes, Randy, you missed. I said, No, 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 no. Let's get down out of the tree. So he went over and got my arrow and showed it to me. Of what no one had told me was that in the springtime these black bears have hair that's like six inches long hanging down and i shot you know i shot four or five inches above the bottom of what i thought was his brisket and it wasn't it was just hair (laughs) Uh, and that's now tom showed me the video afterwards and he showed me how badly my hands were shaken but i just want to say for the record it was very cold so buck fever, <laughs> buck fever had nothing to do with it. Yes, clearly, clearly. So what's the biggest meal deal you've ever missed? Uh, <laughs> oh, I've missed a lot of big ones. <laughs> I, You know what? The thing is, though, I'm sure it wasn't my fault. <laughs> I'm sure I'm they sensing a trend did, here. You know, my arrow was bent or something was wrong with my bow. It was not my fault. <laughs> so For how big, record, though? 220, oh. 230. Oh, 230s. 220s, 230s. 210s, 220s, 230s. Yeah. Yeah. All of those. Yeah. <laughs> every, every, every 10, 10 inch increment, huh? I've missed one in every 10 inches from, from a, a spike all the way up to 230 inches. Yes. That, that makes me feel better about life. Up to 220s. The ones that I've shot bigger than that, I've actually killed. So, yes. 
Yeah. Well, once in a while, a 220 is going to get away from you. So much fun, man. I'm so glad we got to do this. Um, I was, I've been looking forward to this since we were, we were chatting about the meat eater thing. And since I, since I got to meet you a long time ago when I was at Peterson's bow hunting, I'd love to get you on again next, maybe next spring after the hunting season and chat about how it went. Um, but thank you so much, Randy, for coming on the hunt for real podcast. Well, thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Thanks, Randy. Thank you so much for listening. I can't honestly put into words how much I appreciate anyone taking the time to check into the Hunt for Real podcast. If you like what you heard today, please subscribe so you can get the latest episodes each week as we drop them. You can also find us at huntforreal.com, our YouTube channel where we'll be putting up tips and films throughout the year, as well as through all the usual suspects when it comes to social media. Again, thank you so much for listening.